This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Ryan Bussey, former senior executive in the firearms industry. What I'm witnessing, at least, I, I feel a tipping point in that responsible gun owners have just had enough of this, and it's time for us to, to put responsibility back in the conversation. Ryan's new book, Gunfight, is an intimate and revealing account of his experience in that industry, his growing disillusionment with it, and his ultimate exit. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for uh, having me. Um, my kids and my family have listened to you many times in our household, so it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Well, that means a lot. I appreciate it. So you know how we start. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up like a lot of rural Montana kids. I grew up on a wheat and cattle ranch in far western Kansas, just across the Colorado border, um, multi-generational ranch and farm. In a lot of ways, I grew up with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other. Guns were very important parts of my life, as they are with many rural kids. Yeah, we'll circle back to that upbringing in just a moment. And I think it's important for me to set up this conversation with some personal disclosure. I mean, I'm not somebody who grew up with that background. I'm a rural kid. You know, there was hunters and fishers in my family. I was not active in that space. I was actually shot at by a hunter when I was on my mountain bike as a child. I've only fired a gun twice and both times it really scared me. So I just don't have that fluency and familiarity. So maybe talk about that, that cultural piece. I'm sorry to hear that. I know that must've been frightening as a kid. I try to deal with that a lot in my book. I think there are a lot of people, certainly not that have your experience, um, thankfully, mm -hmm. but that there's a lot of people who don't understand the connection that so many people, so many Americans have to guns. And so, so many of the best times of the early part of my life, I, I, you know, there was a lot of work to be done on a ranch and farm and there wasn't a lot of time for fun. And most often when there was time for fun, it, it often involved guns. We were pheasant hunting or target shooting or deer hunting. And so over the years, the cultural identity of me and my family became wrapped up with guns because the best parts of our lives involved guns. And so they became a symbol for what we wanted to be true and what we wished to be true. And when you have those kind of cultural symbols that are wrapped up in your identity and your family's identity, um, it can be a very healthy thing, but it becomes also so incredibly ingrained in your psyche that mm. it can be used by nefarious forces if you're convinced that it's under threat to do things where I think you sacrifice your own self-interest and some of your morals. So there's a lot of, lot of explanation about how guns are intertwined into so many of our lives. So now we know a little bit more of your upbringing and kind of your, your family situation. You decided to make the gun industry and guns your career. Talk about that thought process of making this your life's work. When I, you know, I decided to get in the firearms industry and the sporting goods industry, you know, and I tell people it's a little bit like a kid who played baseball, which I did making the major leagues. It was a dream thing. I, yeah. I, you know, again, back to the cultural thing, this was something I loved to do. I loved to hunt and fish. I loved to be around those guns. And so when I got in the industry where I, where I got paid, I joke where I would often say things like, well, I, I just want to get paid to hunt and fish. And this is as close as I could get. Sure. There was a lot of truth in that, that, that this was my, this was my way of achieving a dream. And so for a while, it, it was a dream job because it was infused with the same sort of responsibility and decency that my dad had taught me. 
And I didn't feel that it had gone off the rails. And that was in the mid nineties. Um, obviously things have changed and eventually I feared that it was going off the rails and it was changing our country. But early on, it really was a dream. Yeah. And it brings you to Montana, Kalispell yeah. area. Yeah. And there's a particularly telling passage in the book where you and your, your dog are in the Badger Two Medicine area. And that seems like it was a I don't want to give too much away for readers, but a formative moment in you thinking, like aligning your priorities about this industry and this this type of product. When I got into the industry, I was also sort of this thoughtless, conservative, flyover country kid who had spent a lot of time on tractors and trucks and driving tractors around in squares and fields, which I know a lot of Montana kids have done. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, talk radio poured into those spaces. And I was just sort of this thoughtless conservative kid who sort of bought the lines of various political figures. And I believed, I believed in those talking points and that the Republican party was, you know, in favor of, of wild places and hunters and wild animals and things like that. And I believe the firearms industry was too, because that was part of the rhetoric. And when I found the Badger 2 medicine and, and other wild places in Montana, frankly, it really, Montana changed me in, in just immeasurable ways. I eventually fought for those places. I was recruited to do a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in 2004. You know, the hook was that I was this relatively conservative person or perceived to be. I, all my politics were already breaking down. And I was criticizing the Bush administration, which was a Republican administration, and I was from the gun industry. So you can see what the hook was going to be. And that blew up into a dozen national newspapers. uh, And I was then attacked vociferously by the firearms industry, the NSSF and the NRA. I was attacked because I attacked the wrong political party. And that's when the scales kind of fell from my eyes and I realized, okay, I've bought a line here. It, it was breaking down already through various other things, but that really put the nail in the coffin. And from then on, I decided, nope, I'm standing up for my self-interest from then on. And I became an opponent of the politics and the policies of the industry, even though I was inside of it. Yeah. So these politics are unfolding within your own company, with your colleagues, but also within the NRA and their, and their sort of the role the NRA has played in the polarization of our politics uh, is particularly telling in the book. Talk about that a little bit. You're right. There's sort of two storylines. My memoir, the narrow lens nature of my memoir and my family's experience, Mm -hmm. and then the larger kind of 30,000 foot view of what's going on in our country. And, And as it turned out, I was a member of an organization of an industry that was changing a nation that was fueling the NRA and that ended up changing the nation's politics. And the through line, the largest through line of the book is that the, the politics of division and hate and conspiracy and not being able to trust your neighbors and hating members of your own family, that kind of ugly politics really started with the NRA. And I witnessed the, the emergence of that, the fueling of that, the embrace of that by the NRA. And it really began to frighten me after that 2004 event. And I, and I began to push back in every way I could. And there's some terminology at play here, you know, the, the rise of kind of military style weapons in the general populace, also corresponding with these endless wars in the Middle East. So that's happening. But then the industry is starting to see profit margin in these, in these categories, right? As with a lot of movements and big changes in a country the size of the United States, it's not just one thing. It's several things that kind of were conflagration. Yeah. And as the NRA was figuring out, sort of stumbling onto the fact that hate and conspiracy and division could be used to drive a political movement, could be, it could be 
frankly, it could be used to create fear and drive people to the polls. Then you had a long, you know, decades of ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you had returning veterans who had served the country. And you had, you know, decades of CNN and Fox News news coverage of these wars. People had seen these guns of war, AR-15s, and what, you know, pejoratively was called the sandbox, um, desert tan colored guns. And this sort of patriotism mixed with fear of the NRA and distrust of the other, and then this machismo that was built around the weapons of war, that also became profitable. Not only did it drive politics, it became profitable. And then the gun industry really started to change. When I got into the gun industry, there were very specific uses for all the guns that were sold, target guns, hunting guns, self-defense guns. But then millions of these guns started to be sold and never nobody could quite understand exactly what they were all for. There were reasons created for them, but a lot of those were created. And the gun industry went from selling three to five million units a year to in the last 12 months, I think the totals are going to top 23 or 24 million units a year. So a four or 500 percent increase, largely based on this new sort of brand of, of shooter and hunter. Yeah. So when you say nobody really knew what these guns were for. I mean, it seems pretty clear they're they're designed to kill people. They're designed based off of military designs, right? Right. So an AR-15 was designed and accepted and adopted by the U.S. military as an offensive weapon of war. It's a it's a war. It's a weapon meant to kill people. And there there obviously now are very various versions of the gun that are target guns, and there are some hunting guns, but um, that are AR-15s. But still, the vast majority of those guns that are sold are modified. Um, to be weapons of war, and, and a lot of people own them. Um, and I, I started to worry about this sort of cult that was built around these guns. And when eventually when they ended up in places like the Michigan Capitol with armed men with 30-round magazines screaming at lawmakers, or I opened the book you know, with a lot of these guys at a rally that my family and I were at in Kalispell, where they were intimidating people with AR-15s, you know, 100 of these guys with AR-15s. I really worried about the impact and the sort of a new kind of cultural connection to guns. Yeah. And what do you think it is about this particular category of guns that is so powerful from an identity and branding standpoint? I mean, the, the, the black rifle movement, as you refer to it in the book, it just seems like there was a timing piece, yep. but also that the product and the culture itself coalesced to be a really powerful identity force. You know, I don't think it's accidental why the people who marched on the Capitol in Janu- on January 6th had two basic types of flags, right? They had American Trump sort of political flags, and then they had come and take it AR-15 flags. I think guns and the AR-15 in particular are now at the very center of our political division. And I think there are various reasons for that. But one is that that rifle, when loaded and and cocked and ready to go, is a is an unbelievable symbol of power. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you walk into a room, just three or four of us walk into a room with no guns. It doesn't seem very odd. Somebody walks in with an AR-15 loaded on their chest. Obviously, they instantly have the power in the room. And in a larger sense, that's what's going on in our politics. When you have these armed men that invade a capital in Michigan or Kentucky or a protest in Kalispell or across the United States in the last 12 to 18 months, it's a way to convey this sort of unhealthy power. And that's not that's not the way a democracy functions. I'm worried that that's, it destroys the civility and the decency and the responsibility that is required for a democracy to function because 
civility does not exist when one party is standing over the other with a loaded gun. You know, as you said, the rise of the black rifle and the AR-15, the power and like that, that just sort of threat that that imposes. And that carries over to our how our politics ex- exist right now. And you sort of start to go down this path further. And eventually you get to the breaking point. Maybe talk about that. I look back now, I wonder where my breaking point actually was. But I, I think for me, one of the most illustrative things was Donald Trump was elected, obviously, in November of 2016. His inauguration actually fell on the last day of the industry trade show that next year in 2017. That was mm-hmm. in February of 2017 or January 2017. I can't remember the exact day, but I know it was on the, on the inauguration day. And the whole industry was assumed to be so single-minded that I had never seen this before, but the, in, the whole sh- you know, the SHOT Show is a, tr- is a huge show. It's in Las Vegas, one of the largest trade shows in the nation. And a place that usually moves with this frenetic place just slowed to a stall, and almost every booth in the entire Las Vegas Convention Center had a big flat-screen TV. The inauguration was played, and the inauguration was piped, the audio was piped in through the loudspeakers of the entire convention, as if every single, every single person, entity, there were a lot of um, foreign gun companies there. I guess they were, they were supposed to celebrate this as well. And I thought this this incredible toxic groupthink where nobody can do anything but praise this particular event. Uh, I remember, as many people in Montana know, when you fly home from places, oftentimes you get home at midnight, which I mm-hmm. did. And I remember I crawled into bed that night. Sarah whispered, how did it go? And I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And um, I did do it some more, but I think the die was cast for me then. We'll be back to my conversation with Ryan Bussey after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Ryan Bussey, longtime executive in the firearms industry and author of Gunfight. You know, a, lo- a lot of the recent reporting about the NRA is just painting a picture of an organization in disarray, the lawsuits within, the bankruptcy, um, the filing, the court filings in New York State. I mean, it, for, for an organization that is so seemingly in disarray, I guess the question is, one, is it in disarray or is that just what you read in the New York Times? And if it is, like, how, how does it still exert so much political power? It is in disarray. I don't think it's ever really not been in disarray. It's always been... an organization of graft and of disarray and of using people and of, of really lying to its constituency because for so long it hasn't been about guns. It's been a culture war organization. You know, there's been a lot of tapes come out here lately of actual NRA officials saying things that validate so much of what my book indicates (laughs) I lived through, which is they made the decision that this was not about guns. This was about amping up the culture war and dividing people so that the country could be kept at this constant pressure cooker, just just one you know just one degree below an explosion, and that's why anytime something was dumped into society, whether it was a political candidate, whether it was Barack Obama, you know, who all of these vitriolic things were said about Barack Obama and his administration, or Joe Biden, or nine eleven that was turned into sort of this you know incredible racist toxic soup, all of these things. Instead of making the country better, they were used to keep that temperature, the national toxic temperature, just one step below 
you know, explosion. You ask about what the future of the NRA, there is, there's a lot of disarray there, but I don't think NRA-ism is going away, much like Trumpism is not going away. Sure. The, the, the fire has been let across the country. It's dry and it's windy and it's burning out of control. So, or if you want to use another analogy, that pressure cooker has exploded and it's just, you know, it's just spilled all over the place. So even if the organization is weakened, it's politics and it's vitriol have not weakened. People think that they can control this, but when you start a radicalized movement, you lose control of the radicalization. I use the analogy of people think they can start this little fire and stay warm by it, this little campfire, but when you wake up and again, and it's windy and it's dry and it's got away from you, you don't get to control it anymore. And that's where we are now. And so what distinguishes this radicalized movement is just the concentration of lethal weaponry within it. You know the gun sales figures. They've been strong. They're particularly strong during Democratic presidencies, yep. as you talk about in the book. But it's also growing more concentrated. A smaller number of people are owning more and more and more dangerous guns. Yeah, there's definitely more, you know, more people own more guns, but... I think is quite illustrative during the pandemic, during the initial stages of the pandemic, and then after the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. rallies across the country. Those are the most tumultuous times, I hope, that you and I live through, like politically and as a nation. It felt, you know, it felt like we were coming apart at the seams. It was a frightening time. Well, that also happens to be the time when gun sales and gun ownership exploded. And the point is that the NRA was right. If you create a society with enough fear, anybody will go buy guns. Now, I'm not opposed to buying guns. I sold millions of guns. I own lots of guns. My kids and I shoot every chance we get. We hunt every chance we get. But owning guns strictly because you're fearful and then creating an atmosphere where the entire country is fearful of the other half of the country and then we're all armed for a violent civil war and half of the people want it. I don't know about you, but that's not the country I want to live in, because if that happens, none of the rights, none of the amendments, second or otherwise, none of them will matter. And so we have to, we have to get back to a place where responsibility is valued, not just fear to make us go out and buy guns. It does seem like that is possible on the gun issue. It does seem that it's an issue where reasonable people could figure something out. I mean, I, I think about other divisive issues in our society, like abortion for one, right? There are people that believe that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal right to choose. And there's other people that are, you know, it's a personal healthcare choice. And there's other people that think it's murder. Yeah. So it's hard to see where there's a path to common ground. With something like guns, there does seem to be a path or, you know, a logical path. I don't know if that, that logic appeals to any policymaker or politician, but like, what do you think is our way of turning down the, the heat and figuring out a way to live with these things? Well, the Montanans that I know, the Montanans that I hunt with and mm -hmm. fish with, not all of them agree with me politically, but none of them are okay with this irresponsibility having to do with guns. None of them think it's okay to march through towns and frighten, you know, young high school kids with guns. None of them think it's okay to threaten, to use loaded AR-15s to threaten to kidnap and kill governors, right? And so Montanans are an independent lot. I'm an independent person. But responsibility, you know, has is woven through the Montana psyche. And I think that that's where we will come to agreement because so many of the things that we're witnessing now in gun culture, I mean, responsibility has left the building. And I think that really offends responsible gun owners. And I think the point is that responsible citizens and responsible gun owners have to be a part of the solution. 
we cannot be the problem, right? We can't be the thing that takes the country apart. We have to be one of the things that holds it together. And that gives you hope. You think there's a pathway. I really do. I think as with a lot of things in your life, they have to get, you know, they have to get kind of bad before they get better. And I think we have seen some pretty ugly things in our country over the past many months. You know, we've seen a 17-year-old kid kill people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We've seen three white men run down a black man in Georgia and claim a citizen's arrest and kill him with a gun. We've seen, you know, the capital of the most powerful democracy the world has ever seen attacked and guns are at the center of that. And those are ugly things. What I'm witnessing, at least, I I feel a tipping point in that responsible gun owners have just had enough of this. And it's time for us to, to put responsibility back in the conversation. And I guess in our closing minutes here, Ryan, I'd love to flip around the perspective for a moment and kind of go back to, you know, my perspective coming into this. I think it's easy for the quote unquote prestige media and coastal elites to to not really very few of those writers and talking heads have any experience with guns at all. Yeah. Right. So what is the left getting wrong? And what can the left do better to engage this debate in good faith and try to work towards solutions? The first thing that needs to happen is for the left to stop buying the the NRA's baloney. And by that, I mean the NRA has succeeded because it has forced all gun owners to operate or to be represented under one umbrella. As if, you know, once the, once the AR-15 and tactical culture started to take over the industry, we were often told that we must all be the same, that all guns are the same, that all gun owners are the same, that even, you know, that's why, if you notice, nobody from the firearms industry criticizes Kyle Rittenhouse. Nobody from the firearms industry criticizes these men that storm capitals. Why? Because there's a culture where everybody must be the same, very much like right-wing politics, right? No matter what happens, no matter how ugly it is, I mean, members of Congress threatening to kill other members of Congress, we cannot criticize them. We all have to be the same. Well, that will lead to a civil war. When you cannot criticize your own tribe, it will lead to a civil war. And I think to your question about what coastal folks and media folks need to understand is not all gun owners are like that. Not all gun owners are okay with that. In fact, many, many are not only not okay with it, they detest it. And so I would say to coastal folks, to people in the Democratic Party who might not understand this, reach out. You have, you have friends here. These are, respon- these are good, responsible people. Just because they own and use guns does not mean they're not good, responsible people. I'm one of these people. And there's far more of us than you may think. And I, I believe there's, you know, I think it's way over 50% of gun owners are this way. Media folks and coastal folks need to stop shoving them in the corner. And we need to, you know, we need to be willing to accept people that aren't those, those uh, radicals. So we've talked about tactical culture and sort of the glorification of weapons of war in that culture. Yet we're also living through this period where we are, I think as a society, starting to come to grips with the costs of those endless wars on the people involved. I mean, our veterans are coming back with deep problems that our society is, doesn't really have the systems and, re- and the government's certainly not dedicating the resources to helping them. So these guys are living in the aftermath of using these weapons to do what they were designed to do, yet we have this other side of our culture that glorifies that, that type of weaponry. How do you feel about that sort of juxtaposition? I think you're right. And when you have those sorts of societal turmoils, 20 years of war, people who have sacrificed for their country, and who 
frankly, there's a lot of PTSD. There's a lot of ugliness that happens in war. I've got a lot of friends that are veterans. If, if these people aren't taken care of and embraced and appreciated by the country, it creates a potential place for radicalization. And, I mean, there was an, an alarming number of veterans that were in, those, in that January 6th crowd, and I'm distressed by that. And I think it's incumbent upon us as citizens and us as a country to not wait until people are so troubled they become radical. It's, it's not just veterans. We, there's, there's been economic turmoil in our country, yeah. and we, we have sort of abandoned people, and they became radicalized. There, there has been racial turmoil, and we have sort of abandoned people, and they've become radicalized. And, we, and, there, and there's this military turmoil, and we've abandoned these people, and they've become radicalized. I sense a theme here. We should not abandon people like we have. And so, but that requires a very healthy and vibrant democracy and society. And that is not going to exist if we tear it apart with a violent insurrection or a violent civil war. Yeah, and your, your riff about how the NRA demands everybody's the same. Like, if we assume and demand everybody is the same, we will continue to abandon groups that aren't the same. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big risk. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very worried about that. I'm exceedingly worried, but I'm also very hopeful because I believe, I believe in the goodness of American people, and I believe that in our hearts we don't want to do these violent, <laughs> these violent things, these violent armed things that so many of these political power entities want us to sure. do. But we have to stand up for our own self-interest. I think you're right. It's a small number of people doing these things, but it's very few of our leaders having the courage to stand up to those forces. <laughs> One of the themes is, as with our modern politics, a very small number of people grab the mic and then they set the tone for an entire organization yeah. or an entire country. And it's time that the reasonable people, I know it's difficult. People don't like to fight back. They don't like to, they don't like to confront their relative who's a QAnon believer who says crazy things at Thanksgiving dinner. But we can't keep letting these things pass. We have to stand up for our own self-interest. We have to put sanity back in the room. And um, frankly, we've got to take the mic back. So that's, that's what I hope happens. So one other thing, Ryan, I know that uh, public lands are very important to you. You've been active in, in Montana conservation voters, backcountry hunters and anglers. Anything yeah. you want to talk about with that particular issue and why it's so important to you? I'm a student of history. I'm a student of our government. I believe all the words in the Constitution. I, I, I love the Declaration of Independence. But honestly, those are all ethereal ideas. They're beautiful. They helped form what I believe is, is the most beautiful democratic experiment ever on the planet. But public lands are something we can touch. It's, it's an experiment that no other country ha ha has played around with. And it really, to me, is the epitome of trusting citizens with something we can touch and feel. People who attack them call them federal lands or call them this. They're none of these things. They're ours. To me, that is the manifestation of a government trusting its people with something as big and beautiful as 600, 700 million acres of public lands. And, you know, some of the most beautiful, fulfilling times in my life, most of them, in fact, have been in and around public land. So it's something that's just incredibly important to me. Well, Ryan, as we close here, we should mention Gunfight. It's such a powerful book. If folks want to learn more about your work or any of the other organizations that uh, you're involved in, where would you point them online? So just go to my website. I've got an author website. It's Ryan Bussey Author. Dot com. It's just all one word, and you can see updates there, buy the book, articles, podcasts, whatever. So we'd love to have you visit there. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Ryan, and yep. thanks for the work. Yep. Thanks for your show, Justin. I appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.